Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello folks, welcome back to another installment of the Napoleonic Wars pod and another instalment of War of 1812 Month. A quick favour to ask, if you're loving the show, can you do me a quick favour? Drop a like wherever you're listening to this, sub to make sure you can find your way back, and share it with a friend. Three really simple things that'll help me reach a much wider audience much faster. If you are particularly loving the show and you feel like giving it a stellar review, head over to Apple Podcasts where you can leave a five-star or four-star, or three-star, or two-star, or even one-star review of the show, please feel free to add a comment as well. It's another really good way for me to be able to reach out to more people, and it makes so much of a difference you wouldn't even believe. If you are a mega fan of the show, bear in mind that you can get your hands on even more of this podcast by heading over to Patreon and subscribing. For just £1 a month, you can get an additional 4 or more hours of podcasting content every single month because this podcast has gone weekly over on Patreon. There are a whole host of other perks if you fancy other things besides. Obviously, I do understand that times are hard right now, so I totally get that many of you won't be in the mood for it. There is a much longer explanation of the different perks and what you get and all the rest of that. Um, If you've got any questions, drop me a line on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory. Um, But the most important thing I would like you to do is to take the time today to go and tell somebody how much they mean to you. It's important to spread the love at any time of year and in the run up to Christmas, it's more important than ever. So be sure to tell somebody you love them and I'll catch you very soon. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Napoleonic Wars podcast and another instalment of the War of 1812 month. I'm excited today. Well, I'm always excited. That's a given. It's a podcast and I'm nerding out about Napoleonic stuff, so I'm going to be excited. But today, well, to be honest, you know what we're talking about because you've seen the title to the show. And to say it's up my alley 
is to make quite the understatement. I'm going to keep with the social history theme that's becoming quite kind of commonplace with this War of 1812 month. And now we're going to look at naval discipline. So you know full well that detailed comments about things like flogging are in the next hour of your life, folks. Hashtag sorry, not sorry. I am joined by the brilliant Tom Malcolmson. Tom wrote a fantastic book that actually, and I was saying this to him just at the start, it kind of started me off on the route to my PhD. So it, this is quite a kind of special moment for me. It was called Order and Disorder in the British Navy, 1793 to 1815. And it was subtitled Control, Resistance, Flogging and Hanging. All good things for naval um, kind of crime and punishment nerds and army crime and punishment nerds for that matter as well. Tom is a former professor at the School of Liberal Arts and Sciences at George Brown College, Toronto, Ontario, having completed his doctorate, doctorate in history at York University in Toronto. Tom, great to see you. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you for having me. This is a great pleasure. I gather I'm kind of dragging you back, not quite kicking and screaming into no. the 19th century, because you've moved on to other kind of pastures, haven't you? Yes, yes. Uh, since the uh, the book has come out, although I st I've still been writing uh, in the area of maritime history, and particularly the, the Royal Navy on the Great Lakes, um, sort of after the War of 1812, some of the things that came out as a result, um, no, I've moved on to some other areas of social history, which uh, I've wanted to address for quite some time and uh, taking the opportunity to do that. So I'm going to start with what is admittedly a very basic question, but having found this out the hard way myself with my own research, I find that often people don't really get military law. They do love to oversimplify and I think it's important, and sure, this is me just harping on about my usual thing here, but I do think it's important to recognise the kind of the complexity of these systems. So how is discipline meant to work in the Navy during this period? Okay, well, when I, when I think about this, this question overall, the word discipline just fascinates the hell out of me. It's what a wonderful word. And it really has, I think, three different uh, messages to us, if we want to say, rather than definitions. One is that discipline is that practice where you train someone or a group of people to obey uh, a set of rules, regulations, or orders. Uh, you train them, in a sense, uh, to move in a particular way, particularly on a ship. You train them to uh, work the ship whether it's a line they're pulling on up in the, the yards on a sail, you train them at a gun until they work in unison, perfectly on command. That's one type of discipline. And I think we need to keep that in our minds when we think about naval law and order. The other kind is the discipline which people jump to right away, and that is the discipline where you punish someone. And if you look in the dictionary, it actually says to punish to correct uh, disobedience, um, which, again, we might think on the surface, that's what that is. But I think there's far more to it when we talk about discipline in that way of using punishment. You know, you're, you're using punishment to get people back in order to, to push against what I've always referred to as a disorder. 
The other form of discipline is the, is the self-discipline. It actually refers to one's own person training. Like I, I discipline myself to act in a particular way. Um, and I push away all kinds of other things that come at me. And I take charge. So there's those three three kinds of ideas of discipline. When again, as you said, when people jump to this, they jump right away to the issue of punishment. Uh, discipline being, you know, there's rules. You break a rule, and this is what your punishment will be. Um, and then I, I think that's only part of the story, because really, um, and again, I, I mentioned this in in the book, Order and Disorder. And when I talk about this, uh, and, and I take it apart, I, I mentioned that, you know. Those systems that they use to create order, the kind of disorder that was seen and the response to it, it, when we talk about it that way, we begin to fracture it apart when actually people experience this all jumbled up together. So when you talk about discipline as a punishment, you're also talking about that discipline of training people to obey a particular way. Um, the behavior that they punished for in the navy and i think probably in the army as well well that's not my area of expertise at all um it was behavior that they didn't want because it disrupted the ship it disrupted the activity that the officer the commanding officer wanted so i'm training you to do a b and c in that order and you do a c and you bugger up on on B or you don't do it or whatever and I'm going to push you back but not only am I pushing you back and this again is is part of the I think the ordering process actually that I believe needs more work is I'm going to punish you I'm going to quote discipline you in a way that's public that shows everybody else on the ship that this is what we want which is again that discipline about ordering people to do a certain thing and that the discipline was not only to counter a harm done it was to show everybody else you know have to help everyone else conform to the behavior that you desired as a as an officer or as the navy so i i think when we we have to think about it as that way it's not just punishing a behavior it's also reshaping the entire crew shaping all the other members you're sending very clear messages, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have on a few occasions talked about Roger Norman Buckley's work on um, the British Army in the West Indies, and he has this phrase, terror and torture as public spectacle. Now, mm -hmm. I, to an extent, dispute the terror and torture element. Yes, there is brutality, absolutely, mm -hmm. in, in the way in which the system works across both forces here you know my side army your side navy um but quite whether you want to classify that as torture is a very much a case of definition because right. there are those you know this is where you bring in the sort of the john landbines of this world who turn around and say well you, you just can't use torture within a context where it is sort of legally um sanctioned by the law at a given moment in time now the flip side to that is that if you look at modern um, definitions of torture it does include um, definitions that would allow you to class flogging as torture so you know already we rabbit hole here what yes. I wouldn't dispute is the public spectacle element this is yeah. absolutely about sending an emphatic and clear message there is a line and if you cross the line 
This is the consequence. And you're going to stand here and watch that consequence and consider whether or not you want the same to happen to you or yeah. whether you just want to do things our way. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed, that, that was one, one message sent out, right? Absolutely. Just as on land, there were public spectacles, right? I mean, crowds would form to watch executions or public uh, hangings or, or to come to the pillory uh, to watch this, whoever be punished. In some cases, completely for authority. In other cases, not happy with what was going on. You know, how much? Not a, how much the public element is kind of forced upon you, though, by the fact that it's a ship and there aren't really private spaces in the ship. Mm -hmm. You got the odd, okay, captain's cabin mm -hmm. being one of them, but pretty much everywhere else is inherently a public space because you haven't got many places to go so it's going to be seen well um it's going to be seen but then it's going to be seen get it so uh there was a hanging uh they 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 hanged one seaman on on lake ontario on the great lakes during the war of 1812 seaman jones um he was deserted and they caught him just before he got to the United States, just before. I mean, literally, he was with probably three or four hundred yards away from this, from the a safe shore. Uh, they got him and they brought him back and they hanged him. And and Commodore Yo, in charge of the Great Lakes uh, element, he had the hanging was at Kingston. The, the ships were all there. He had the uh, ship upon which he served the Niagara brig. They were the ones who hanged him. So his own crew members hanged him. Um, and he had every other ship arranged and had all the men either on the yards, standing on the yards, facing the execution or along the bulkheads facing this execution. So it is a public display ordered. On a ship, when you lash someone, you had all the people you could I mean, you, you might still be sailing or there might be other people that need to keep a lookout on something, but you had everybody brought up on the main deck to watch this and they were not to turn away. So there's public, then there's public. Now, if you lash somebody on a regular busy day, people going about their business, they could turn away, they could occupy, they could talk to each other, they could try to, to get it out of their ears, but when they have to be dead silent and face the uh, the punishment or the execution, it is, it is more than public. It's a message. It's a personal kind of message to each and every person. The same thing with granting mercy. Um, uh, Admiral Warren uh, took it upon himself uh, to grant mercy, which he was censored for, because <laughs> uh, only the king can do that, for two men. Uh, and in one of these cases... Uh, you know, and so, so this is this again is, is is quite the quite the display. The man is brought. They 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 rig up this um, platform uh, off the forecastle. There's a gun right underneath it. Um, the man is put up on the uh, this platform, uh, which of course has a trap door in it, and uh, a rope is brought down. It's put on his neck. He gets the last word from the uh, the minister. He is asked his last word. The cannon goes off, a cloud of smoke appears or you know, covers them. Normally what would happen is, again, members of the crew would pull on a line and they would pull them up through the smoke. 
and he would dangle there and, and you know strangle to death that's what hanging is about or it would have broken his neck well in this case the gun smoke cleared and the guy is standing on the platform still because admiral warren said mercy i'm going to stay this you're not going to be executed right so the gun goes off this guy thinks he's going to heaven or wherever and nothing happens and the officer steps forward and tells him at the same moment all the ships that were with the squadron at that time had the men facing that ship for the execution at that same moment all the captains read out a message from warren exact same message that it is by his grace, which again, he got censored for, that mercy is given to show how kind and caring that your officers are. But the message is, don't do what he did, you know? So this is so public. It's so purposefully sent uh, to help order, create that order, that discipline that they wanted, right? So those are a couple of examples. The, They're all the over the place, look. The, the, exactly the the similarities between what you found and what I found are just fascinating. That kind of sense of I'm going to pardon you, but I'm going to make sure everybody else understands quite why I've pardoned you, and it's because yep. you need to realize that there are consequences, and I could absolutely go the whole way, but yep. I'm nice, so I won't. But do you really yep. want to test that? No, you don't. Yes. I, That's right. This, this is why I love this topic. It's so clever in terms of kind of manipulation and, and people control and all the rest of it. Yeah, and it's powerful. It's powerful. It, it is. And you can tell this from the memoirs. And we, yes. we will get on to kind of accounts and so on in due course. But what is it that kind of often comes up when it comes to the punishments? Well, in the army's case, it's those instances where those messages are sent, those messages kind of resonate and they stick in the mind mm -hmm. in a way that actually the day-to-day the -day kind of floggings, they don't, you know, you don't often get, you know, today a, a guy received 1,000 lashes in the army's case, different for the Navy, we'll, yeah. we'll get to that in just a moment, but that's not what comes up. It's those cases where, you know, somebody's executed in a particularly unpleasant way or there's been a literal stay of execution. Um, mm -hmm. It works. Yes, yes. And in in, um, in Warren's case, as I said, you know, he was he granted these two pardons, and he was told by the Admiralty. I guess it made its way up to the uh, the Privy Council, but it, it it the Admiralty was the one that that sent him the letter saying you can't do that. Um, you can recommend, but it's the king's prerogative. And can you imagine having the king pardon you? Again, what a message that that would send about how your behavior struck all the way to the king. I mean, that's how this bad behavior, that's that's how effective it has, the effect it has on us. So don't do that. And that the king uh, may grant you a, a, a pardon, but the king is also sending a message. Well, the system is sending a message. Who knows if the king really knows? <laughs> See, that's really interesting because in the army, it's the king or the prince regent who has to um review all of the cases that are, are sent verticum is sent home for confirmation mm -hmm. from the sounds of things in but there is a, a caveat to that which is that regional commanders of forces can offer mercy uh, as mm -hmm. in that well they can certainly commute 
punishments and in some cases that amounts to a pardon although they're not allowed to use the term mercy because as you say mercy is something that the king can give and, and nobody else um but it sounds like that system doesn't quite exist within the navy so how does it work in terms of this chain of command and also in terms of checking things well um you're right with the art with the navy too uh for certain types of punishments such as lashings from a court-martial a um a flag officer for example can um you know nullify uh, a certain number of them if he wishes uh and there's examples of that as well but uh never nullifying all of it you you're you've been <laughs> if you've been assigned lashes from a court-martial you're going to get a fair port portion of them at least if not all of them um but uh in terms of the death penalty uh it uh, again they do need to write home to the admiralty to say that this has happened uh and the admiralty will, will review it and, and send back a, a yes to it uh i am not aware of the requirement to go to uh the, the crown with this at any any level um and indeed uh it seems to me that uh in the um, North American station, North American West Indies station, and the the, uh, the hangings were either off North America or, as I said, the one in uh, on Lake Ontario. Um, they were done fairly quickly. So the idea that they were sent home for an okay and an okay came back that doesn't really seem to fit. Uh, once you were sentenced to uh, to hang, I'm sure that the flag officer reviewed it and then. It was done. That's so interesting. They hanged a few people more than uh, than um, it seemed to me to be a little heavy handed. It wasn't a huge number, less than 10 for sure. I think there was six, uh, but it did seem within the, the short period of time that they were here, um, there there seemed to be a um, a willingness to to engage in that. And I believe the the hangings that went through were all for desertion. Uh, the hanging that was stopped was uh, for uh, murder uh, that probably was influenced by drink. Um, oh, so many, so many directions I want to take this, this interview yeah. in right now. Um, but let's, let's stay with punishment <laughs> just for the moment. Um, because you, we've talked about hangings, but mm -hmm. in terms of wider options, what are we looking at? What's the range um I, I think in a moment we'll get into this idea of severity of lashes and all the rest of it but before we get sure. there um what's the what are the options available if you want to punish someone you know from the most trivial offense all the way up to the worst and then also you know how often are those actually meted out in practice mm -hmm. okay um wow there's a, a heck of a range here um, so a, a, a captain, because of, there's a, a, as we know, there's a, a set of, of uh, legal rules, legal uh, conditions called the Articles of War that uh, covers the ships at sea the, and, and in harbor. Um, there, there's 36 uh, items here, 36 paragraphs describing various behaviors. Uh, the 36th is the one that governs summary, summary punishments on board ship. And it basically says for anything else <laughs> that the officer feels need to be punished in appropriate behaviors, uh, he has permission to engage in this. Uh, now, again, a captain cannot uh, punish, cannot physically punish 
any commissioned officer or midshipman or the warrant officers, the, for example, the carpenter or the sailmaker, gunner, um, they have to go to a court-martial. And the court-martial I'll get to in a minute. So the captain has a fair range. Now, what can he do? He can order lashings for particular types of behavior. Now, the lashings traditionally have been uh, meted out in groups of 12. Um, although you can give six, you can give 12, 18, 24, 36, 48, and we can go on, right? Up until uh, 1806, the regulations and instructions that governed the His Majesty's ships uh, actually had underneath, and, it's, and that basically is a, it's evolved. In 1806, it comes up to be, they completely reorganize the thing. They add to it. It, it really is, to me, this the beginning of the true bureaucratization of the Navy. It's a series of what I would refer to as job descriptions as to what each of the commissioned officers and warrant officers must, and the purser, and the, uh, the chaplain, uh, and the school teacher, must do on board ship does not talk about punishment, does not talk about discipline, and they don't do this, uh, that there would be certain consequences is quite clear. It gives them all sorts of forms they need to fill out. It becomes very much a lot of recording and, and keeping track of how things are, are done or where you are and what you're doing. Um, it's very clear. But in that, it says that if the, as the captain's the one to can, uh, dish out summary punishment, and prior to 1806, it, it was 12. You're supposed to do 12 lashes, no more. But we, we know that before they did give more. And what the captain would often do is he would have disobedience and neglect of duty and um, uh, inappropriate uh, discussion or inappropriate uh, language to an officer. And he could give 36, right? Boom, you just add up the number. Oh, I'm giving 12 for each, right? Although that wasn't always, you, you, you get examples, drunkenness, 36, you know. Um, in in the book, of the, the set of uh, 800 pages of stuff now, it's, it's a huge volume. Um, that number 12 is taken out. There is no cap. And it's interesting because I certainly found far more than 12 were, were dished out and they did not add on. I mean, some of them did add two or three offenses together, but there is a lot of single offenses that are getting 36 um, or or more uh, lashes with the cat. Um, and that uh, that's also found by John Byrne in his book, Crime and Punishment in the Royal Navy, which took a look in the Leeward Islands, which took a look from, I think, 1793 to 1811. Um, and he, too, found after 1806 a slight increase, although I, I don't think he saw it as significant. But to me, adding my my work onto that in terms of an overall trend, I think it is once they take the cap off. The captains do feel a certain hand to be able to be, if they wish, a little more harsh. The, I think the highest number I saw from a captain for a summary punishment was 68 lashes of a cat of nine tails. Um, and that that captain received again from the Admiralty a, uh, a letter to his commanding officer uh, to tell him that that was not to be done. That you really needed to do a court martial if you're going to give that many. 
not that he you know, didn't lose any pay or anything, or he didn't get a, a direct censorship, uh, but there was actually a number of letters during the time, 1812 to 1815, sent out from the Admiralty to the commanding officers in the North American and West Indies station saying, look, you know, you've got this ship and the punishments, uh, we're looking at the returns here and they're really, they're really too high. So what's going on here? He needs to pull this back and he needs to do court martials over this level, right? So you're getting officers, some officers doing far more than what the Admiralty is willing to, to live with. And you're seeing other uh, officers giving, you know, six, 12, 18, you know, they do 24 once in a while. Uh, so there are some that aren't doing that. What other punishments could they give out? Well, there are the traditional ones for midshipmen. They wouldn't be lashed uh, usually. They would be caned. And so they would be in a very embarrassing position, put over the, the a cannon, pants pulled down on their bare ass, given a, a basically a spanking with the cane. It would, it would leave marks. It would hurt. Uh, I think the shame and humiliation was probably far harsher. You could send people into the tops. Uh, uh, so there are these platforms, on, of course, on the masts and the ships. You could send them up to the highest top and they would have to stand there for hours. Uh, you might indeed send them up there and not give them any food for the day, which would, again, be a hardship. Um, you could tie them into the rigging, the, the running rigging on the side of the ship. Um, the, um, the Catalines, the ones that they climb up first to get to the first top. Um, you could tie them into that. Now, that's got problems because usually it hurts the person. You can hurt wrists and ankles, and that's going to debilitate them. And so you got to be careful on that. But that's what they could do. Up until 1809, they could start a person, which means you hit them with an end rope, end of a rope, right? Uh, usually to get them moving a little quicker or to get a little quick, a really quick response to the to uh, what you're angry about. And again, it would be a captain. Uh, ordering it. Uh, sometimes lieutenants could order uh, a starting, although that was disputed after that, after 1809. In 1809, the Admiralty was so concerned with starting as being misused and abused that they ordered it stopped. But I found all sorts of evidence that it continued. Uh, and when it came up, even in court martials, where the, the whole court would hear that starting was happening, no one ever questioned it. No one ever said, we should look into that. You know, it was just, okay, next. And we have to understand that the court-martials were read by clerks in the Admiralty Office, and they would bring uh, to the attention of the, the, the board of Admiralty, um, you know, concerns about, uh, again, excessive punishment, things that were done out of, uh, out of hand, and cases that were uh, possibly, you know, a little bit of a hotbed of, a, of contention, right? So... That, that that's that range in a court martial um up to 500 lashes of the cat is what i see besides you know the death penalty of hanging uh they could do imprisonment uh i never saw more than two years at marshal sea in the prison uh that was seen to be really extreme punishment back then although imprisonment on my understanding is after 1816 imprisonment became more of a go-to than the heavy lashings um, but the I think the lowest one that I saw from a court martial was 50. And that was for, again, probably a misunderstanding, but they needed to support the officer. So they lashed the guy 50 times. But 
well, and again with a cat. That's you have to really think lashing with a cat. That's nine strokes, nine pieces of rope hitting you every time. The fifties a lot. It certainly is, but then there's the other side of this, which is that the army has a legal maximum of fifteen hundred, and will inflict <laughs> you know eight hundred to a thousand without even flinching. Um, which is the interesting one. And then we get into the, the debate about to what extent is the Navy more or less severe? Because the, the counter argument used to be, well, it's drummer boys in the army, except that when you look at the work of people like Eamon O'Keefe, you see that a drummer boy isn't actually a boy in the traditional sense. You know, quite often these are, you know, late teens, early 20s. They're, they're young men, so they've got plenty of kind of of oomph behind them if if they want to um, flog someone. And of course, they cycle every, I forget if it's 25 or 50 lashes off the top of my head, but nonetheless, they cycle. So as soon as they start to flag, they're switched out. So is it fair, do you think, to say that the Navy is harsher? Because from my understanding, it's the bosun that does the Navy flogging. And the bosun's, you know, the burliest member of the crew probably the strongest person on the ship so that's going to hurt far more even than a, a drummer boy slash drummer man for want of a better word yeah so i'm um, take a look at scott claver uh, this is an old book called under the lash and he actually suggests that that uh 12 lashes on board ship are equal to 150 lashes in the army uh, on account of the thicker rope and a stronger arm. Uh, I think that's interesting. Um, I'm not sure. This is, what a great question. Um, I, I have been presented with the idea, and uh, I don't agree with this, I must admit, but I have been presented with the idea that some lashings may have been a, a bit more theoretic, uh, theatrical than real, that they may have pulled the, the whip and they didn't really hit as much. I disre- I disregard this. I don't think this is true. Um, a cat of nine tails. So if you did 12, 12 lashes with a cat of nine tails, that's 108 cuts on your back. And the, the Navy tended to do the, uh, it appears, the upper back and neck area. So you're you stringing higher rather than lower. 150 would be 1,350 cuts to your back. Ah, just, you know, that both of them are, are, are awful. Well, I don't know how you'd live for the 1,350, but that's only 150 strokes. Again, there are examples that of, of, a, of men being uh, ordered to have 500 and getting all 500 over time. And that they might do 200 in one session and then another 150 and then the rest with another session, which again, just the idea that you're not finished and you're going to have to go through this again would, would be torturous to one's mind. It just, uh, how would you think of that? Uh, I mean, how would you anticipate that? And that would only happen again. It could happen months apart. You'd never really know. So when the number of ships that were there and, and of course, the Navy did it um, when they did these lashings. It wasn't on one ship only. You were uh, put up on a uh, basically a cross, uh, an X-shaped uh, object in a, a, sh- a boat, and you went around to all the ships. 
and a boatswain's mate climbed down the side of the ship and administered the number that he was told to, 25. If there was going to be more than that, then they probably had somebody else come down. Because it's really hard to swing a, uh, a lash like that with great force. Uh, after 25 times, you do get kind of tired, I would imagine. Uh, you also would have to clean the uh, cat that you have because it would be taking off skin after a while and blood. And you'd have to get the things, otherwise it's just one clotted, and that's not what you're supposed to do, right? So this would be a, a difficult thing to experience and see. Again, the crew cut call to the side to, to look. Um, so if, you know, if you're having 1,500 lashes compared to 500, I mean, 1,500 lashes with a cat, you know, the numbers, it's just, it's mind boggling how many stripes on that person's back you're going to lay on over time. Um, I almost would say that the comparison is, is pointless. Uh, both of these are incredibly brutal punishments. Uh, I, again, I, as you said earlier, I think that the whole idea of torture is, that's an interesting discussion to have, but I, I'm not sure it, it fits with this context, context of this time period. Uh, these were punishments that uh, were known. They were public. They were um, widespread. Uh, lashing happened on land as well, as did hanging, as did a number of other punishments that didn't happen on ships. Um, you know, the so 500 or 1500, I mean, at that point, it's, it's, it's just simply brutal. Uh, so I think that the question is, it's an interesting one. Uh, but I, I think it, it, it flattens out somehow is not, uh, is not that important because indeed we're talking these numbers. It's just, it's, it's just, it's just brutal. You know, the, the, the men's back. I read several descriptions in again, memoirs and, and letters and court uh, descriptions of what the back of a man looked like after a, the lashing and, and so i'm thinking of one man who was was lashed uh only six times now he had already been beaten uh by uh two boatswains using a, a line he was started and one line was two and a half inches thick and the other one was one and a half and these left huge welts and marks of course and then he was lashed uh he lashed only six he was supposed to be lashed 24 but he passed out and the doctor interrupted it the captain was furious uh but uh the, his back is described in such a way as that it's inhuman. You know, you look at this thing, it's all swollen, it's slashed, it's bleeding, uh, right from the, the back of his skull to about the midpoint of his back. Just a mess. Um, you know, so about 50, 500, 60, you know, wow, that would just be cruel. I mean, this is the, the thing I get asked, you know, 1500 lashes is that death by flogging. And the reality is we just don't actually know for sure, because nobody's carried out a macabre kind of experiment where you take some kind of ballistic style human <laughs> dummy and start <laughs> flogging the hell out of it. I mean, <laughs> much though I'm fascinated by this, I'm not about to put in a funding bid to try and make that experiment happen. I've got better things no. to do with my life. Um, I don't think you're going to get that funding. <laughs> funnily enough, neither do I. Um, 
but but the you know you know the source here though is uh there's got to be reports about the people who did die from it you know uh although again i can tell you my frustration i i was able to get a few medical uh, journals from ships there's not very many of them in existence unfortunately uh of some of the ships in my sample where flogging happened and you know that in none of these logbooks is the treatment of the flog man noted i mean somebody falls over and and bumps his wrist it's written up somebody comes in with diarrhea it's written up but the guy who's been flogged whose back would just be bloodied and and would be treated by the uh, the surgeon or physician on the ship not written up not in the journal so you know it's very interesting to me it's almost like a denial of the impact of the punishment by the service itself but to not write this up that's fascinating so is that in the army because the guy you know even if they don't do all 1500 and i can't imagine they would do 1500 in one day this guy would come back day and and day after day you know months apart might be a whole year of his life before he gets all these put on him uh, but he'll get most of them put on him um the um the medical i mean he had to be sent to the hospital uh after some of these at least to be looked at do they appear in the medical in the medical journals of the doctors uh, i mean i don't know i've not not looked but i i'm not seeing these in any of the medical journals for ships uh, during the, my time period it would be interesting again later in the 1800s to look in the medical journals to see if the impact of summary punishment uh which again would in some cases lead to uh injury uh were they uh written up in the medical journals or not mm -hmm. So, I mean, these are fascinating questions. I mean, this is going to descend from podcast interview into just plain discussion because this is interesting. So I've never actually tried to dig out admission here. I've never tried to dig out um, medical journals to look into that. That's not a line of inquiry I've done before, which is quite shameful and needs to be rectified, frankly, um, yeah. to try well, and, and see. I got some stuff around drunkenness, you know, and, you know, how drunk were these guys? I mean, how... And again, on some ships, there's a, a number of uh, guys who are so intoxicated that they they injure themselves. They fall into the hole. They they fall off the the forecastle. They they drop something that they can't carry and, and hurt their foot. Um, some are become delirious, and so they end up in the medical file. So you you get to see the you know the cases, and they're not rare. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. 
That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah. So, it's a, so this is another source of indicating it for what it is. And that's really interesting. I'm not surprised that drunkenness is yeah. common, you know, and we can look at all kinds of reasons for that. Impressment might be a factor there, let's be honest. You know, you're going to pluck somebody from their their happy life and go you are serving on this ship you don't have a choice in it your pay won't be particularly great um and you know you could drown you could drown but you know you you've got to do it sober as well are we really surprised that these people decide that they need quite a lot of gin to get through the experience not really not really Um, just to go back to what you were saying i mean 1500 it's sentenced three times it's never inflicted it's always commuted, which I think is interesting in itself. Um, The king turns around on one occasion and says that, in his opinion, 1,000 is quite enough. (laughs) There's a certain (laughs) irony to that. A mere 1,000 lashes, but people ignore that. So it's not a direct order. It's just an opinion expressed Mm -hmm. by the king. And in the wake of that, you still get 1,200 being sentenced. Um, But then the the commutation game Mm -hmm. is quite big in the Mm -hmm. army. Uh, I don't know about the Navy, whether it's quite so common, but there is that inclination to just, you give them an amount. And there's there's also this very fierce debate in Parliament about can you flog somebody, take them down, let them recover, and then string them back up and make them take the remainder. And in the army, the ethos seems to be, yes, you can. In Parliament, the legal discussion is, no, there is no legal provision to do that, and it should not be done it's not a practice that is mm-hmm. sanctioned and so it should be stopped which is interesting you know this idea that you take a punishment you take as much as you can and then once somebody intervenes on medical grounds that's it the rest gets pardoned mm-hmm. not in the navy um there are examples of of, of pardons uh certainly but uh no uh i've got uh, clear evidence of, of people receiving the first 250 and then two or three months later, the the next 250. And, and you know, in a in a way, because these punishments require, uh, in a way, in the uh, with an audience, uh, and the audience indeed participates um, in in it by sending one of its crew members down to administer a particular number of the lashes to the to, to the victim. Um, but the um, taking that 500 lashes and cutting it back or 250 and cutting it back uh, there are, are are examples where they they get a their first installment and then um, they are pardoned from the rest uh the the best one i have would be uh uh vice admiral uh, Hotham. uh he has administered has seen to the administration of a, a first set of punishments to six men uh, for desertion in halifax who were caught uh, most people who ran in Halifax got away. A, a huge numbers ran in Halifax. Halifax was the running spot. It was a sieve to the Navy, unfortunately. But they were these six guys were caught. They were all from his ship. Uh, they received the first installment that the court martial ordered. The ship then had to go to its station off the uh, American coast. Uh, and on, on their way there, uh, the six men uh, petitioned Hodham, who's on their ship. Uh, acknowledging their wrong, uh, begging for forgiveness, 
uh, members of the crew uh, also petition the admiral to, or the vice admiral to pardon these men that uh, these other crew members believe that they, you know. So there's this interesting interplay between the sailors and this flag officer jumping right over the lieutenants and the captains and right to the main man. And he pardons them. He says, okay, the rest is done. And it's the letter you've written. It's the support of your, your mates who, who feel that you have learned your lesson and will behave and that desertion hurts all of us. It's a wonderful letter he has read out to the uh, the ship's crew when he does this. That again, it's just, as we said before, um, it's a bit of a theater uh, moment. You know, it's a bit of acting going on, a seriousness of it. Is he going to grant it? Isn't he going to grant it? Then they start talking and, and boom, it's granted. But not just granted. Let's have a little lecture about how to be good sailors, you know, good good British uh, sailors. And so he takes the opportunity uh, to to tell these people uh, what they should be doing. And that this pardoning um, recognizes that they will do that, right? Which is the underhanded statement to see. Because the next time this happens, there's not going to be a pardon. It's It's full on. You get everything. That's the unsaid message here, right? It's not missed in the crew. <laughs> yeah, the parallels here with what happens in, in the army. Somebody needs to write an article on kind of ethos and cultures of command and the way in which that influences discipline, because this is remarkable that you've got two distinct legal systems because you've got, you have to deal with the Navy articles of war. Mm -hmm. I have the army articles of war. Um, yeah. So we, we've got two separate legal systems that clearly do not speak to one another. Just see what we've just said about the parliamentary debates on, yeah. on my side, you know, no, you can't, you know, let somebody recover and tie them back up again versus the Navy. Yeah, we absolutely do that. And this distinct, <laughs> this distinct thing in terms of lashes inflicted and mm -hmm. yet the way in which this is being implemented. And I was really curious what you were going to say about whether or not Hotham went with the pardoning or whether he went kind of full belt and braces, no, I'm going to give them, you know, thunder and the lash and, and all the rest of it. Yeah. I'm not surprised that he went with that because that's good yeah. command, right? Showing yeah. that leniency that generates yeah. goodwill. Actually, Hoffman's a good guy. We can trust him to, to be human about these yes. things, provided we can play the game, which is effectively what's going on here. You know, they're playing a game saying, this guy's never going to do it again. And we vouch for him. They don't know that. Not really. No, but they're no. they're willing to take that risk, and, and and in that message they are confirming to the uh, officers in front of them that they are going to toe the line, because what that ship had had experienced was massive desertion, over thirty guys ran, while they were in Halifax, you know, and uh, man, you don't want that. <laughs> You're already short of men. You don't want 30 guys deciding, ah, you know, let's go. And they, they went in dribs and drabs. They didn't all 30 at once, you know, pissed off about something. Now, this indicates a, a, a wider mood on the ship. And so when these other crew members come up and say, we're on side, this is good. I don't need to do anything more, Hotham says, and except show you that I'm a good guy and we'll get along. Yeah. I'm, I'm very conscious that we're maybe 45 minutes in and we've we've reached the end of question 2a 
So <laughs> I'm sorry, I talk too much. Not at all. No, this is my fault because I'm just going down every single rabbit hole that I feel inclined to. So we will skip the next one, which we, you've talked about already, in fairness, because we were we were kind of looking at this idea of exploitation. And, you know, I was quite curious about this idea of Captain as God on his ship, but it's clear from what you're saying that there is this kind of checks and balances thing going on. And there are ways in which that you know, as uh, a seaman, you do have what, to use a, a kind of tech, techie historical term, would be agency. You have that power to mm. turn around and go, look, I want to push back on this for reasons and within a framework that can do so. So we can kind of step over that one. I do mm. want to ask about the officers that we've talked about midshipmen. But what about lieutenants, captains, admirals, etc.? What's the story with them in terms of... <laughs> Um, punishing them. I'm guessing it's that thing of they have to go through a court-martial because we talked already about, you know, gunners and and warrant officers and all the rest of it. Um, But is it kind of, look, you'll get dismissed, you'll get cashiered, you'll get, you know, deductions of rank and pay. Is that the kind of punishment system we're looking at, this sort of two-tier thing? Yeah. Uh, I think there's only one case where, and the warrant officers, of course, also, and these are below the commissioned officers. They're socially separate from the commissioned officers, but they're uh, above the uh, the seamen. They're in a real interesting no man's sort of lower middle management level, right? Uh, if we can think about them in terms of, uh, of, of, a, of a corporation or a company or something. Um, so I think there's only one example that I came across where a warrant officer was actually lashed. Um, most of them are, are, are they lose their, their warrant, they, they lose their rights. So they're a carpenter, for example, you're no longer, you're not even an assistant carpenter. And they go to three years, you know, they go ahead of the mast, you're back into a seaman. So it's an incredible demotion. In a sense, it's a sort of a kind of oppressing, you're, you're not even off the ship. That's where you're going to be. Others are, are kicked out of the service. Um, very, very rarely does that happen. There's only one lieutenant who is dismissed from the service for what I could only call outrageous antisocial behavior on the ship on his way over to the the station. It seemed like the man wanted to get out of the Navy. Interestingly enough, his court-martial decision was countered by John Burrell, Secretary of the Admiralty, and he was reinstated. (laughs) You know, I don't know what happened there. I'm going to find that out uh, that uh, but um, one day, but that's what that happened. Captains in, in in this period that I looked at, the captains were uh, overwhelmingly um, charged with uh, a loss of his ship, right? And uh, all of them were, were ultimately cleared. If the captain was killed during the engagement, first lieutenant or the senior lieutenant surviving took that, uh, that hit as well as the crew. Uh, and they were all basically cleared. Now, some of them were censored about not having enough gun practice, but little happened. There is, is one captain, a John Taylor of the Espiegel, um, who uh, he didn't lose his ship, but uh, at least not through <laughs> not through uh, in action. He, um, he was incredibly a, a cruel officer. He was one of these guys who was a tyrant. And ultimately, we won't go into the case in, for, for time, but... Uh, the court martial against him uh, kicked him out of the service. He was done, uh, and he, it, rightfully so. He was a cruel man. The other officer was uh, Vice Admiral uh, Charles Sterling, who um, had a a little bit of a scheme to make some money uh, as the uh, flag officer for Jamaica. That went on for the entire time that he was down there. 
where he basically got money in his pocket for sending a frigate or another British ship uh, with a merchant ship that wasn't carrying species, wasn't carrying money or any valuables, uh, but protecting it from raid uh, to uh, the uh, Honduras co coast and back again. He did this numerous times. There was about 10 officers, uh, captains involved in this kickback scheme. Uh, and one of them was caught and uh, he basically turned state's evidence <laughs> as well as a local uh, a local uh, elite person uh, merchant who probably wasn't able to afford the right. Uh, and he turned him in. He turned Charles Sterling in. And Sterling uh, was court-martialed, found guilty of this fraud, and uh, he was beached. That was it. Interesting, because the army loves to use it as a sort of dangled, almost deterrent. But from what you're saying, it, it almost sounds as if the court-martial for loss of ship is almost like a court of inquiry. You know, we're going to look into what happened, yep. but odds of you actually being discharge you know dishonorable discharge all the rest of it just just not the case um that's no. interesting you, you could look at the officer's career afterwards did they serve again uh and there's a couple of examples where uh you know they they weren't really they weren't really censored but you know they never served again so kind of a kind of a, a informal way uh, of uh just keeping these guys away from ships because they, they weren't really great officers. We should talk a little bit about why all of this matters, particularly within a naval context. Um, and again, this might seem like a bit of an obvious one, but I think sometimes the point is missed about just what a hotbed naval vessels could be during this point in time for catastrophic mutiny. Yep. To the point where I would actually argue that it's more important to maintain discipline in the Navy than it is in the Army. Because in the Army, if you've got a company or even a, a whole battalion that mutinies, you can call upon other battalions to deal with that. If you've got a mutiny on a man of war out in the mid-Atlantic, what are you going to do? What are you honestly going to do to get that ship back into control? Short of trying to smash it to pieces, you, you, you can't do anything about it. It's, it's a floating arsenal, for heaven's sake. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the good thing is, is that uh, this was actually a rare event to have such a, uh, a strong uh, total ship mutiny uh, in which the officers were killed or, or put off the ship. Uh, or in some way incapacitated and the ship uh, taken somewhere else. Uh, the Bounty, uh, the Hermian, uh, and there's another example. The name of the, the vessel is a, a brig, I believe. Uh, Dudley Pope wrote about it. Uh, I think he called it the Black Ship. No, that wasn't. That's the Hermian. Now, Dudley Pope wrote another book about this small ship that the crew uh, rose up and took it into France, uh, where they were all put in prison, except the Americans, uh, which is interesting. But we won't, we won't we'll go on to that, yeah. I'm going for freedom. Oh, no, you're not. Uh, you're British. You're in prison. But you're American. You're out. Um, I love anyway, it. Um, most, mostly it didn't happen. What, what you had was was uh, mutinous. I mean, the word mutiny, you, know, so you, could, you could spend a whole, whole series of podcasts on what is mutiny. I mean, mutiny is one of the most debated and, and argued over 
terms within certainly uh, naval historians. Uh, I think you get a really good Downey Brook going at a conference if you, you know, pushed enough on one or the other side of the issue. Um, so mutiny could be where a guy simply looks at the officer and tells him what to do. Right? And you go, this. Uh, it could be where the crew says, we're not doing this. We're not gonna, we're not going there. We're not doing this. We're not taking this anymore. Um, it could be um, literally the, the like at the Hermian where they, where they break into the captain's cabin at night, stab him repeatedly and then shove him out a window into the uh, South Atlantic. Um, <clears throat> you know, it could be any number of things. So what we see are small incidences of mutinous behavior, um, uh, fairly small in terms of the number of people at any one, one time. It's a very much of a singular activity in most cases. Um, there, uh, I can only think of one case in the Chesapeake area where uh, Marines, uh, a group of Marines within a company uh, mutinied. And I don't know the circumstances because they were never discussed. Uh, why they mutinied was never discussed. Actually, why is a question that's never asked in naval mutinies. Why did you do that? They never asked that question. It's just what happened? What happened next? What did you do? What did you say? That's it. Um, so these guys, they, they mutiny in some fashion and, and uh, they were punished. Um, but uh, there really wasn't any large one, which is good. But you wouldn't want that, would you? So you're going to do all sorts of things to keep the gentlemen uh, serving aboard your ship uh, in spirits that are, well, if not totally happy, they can be disgruntled once in a while, but that they obey, that you have that discipline. And so officers do a wide variety of things to, to do that. And that's why I think the ideal of order is um, to think about how people create order and the wide range of, of behaviors, some of which are completely ordained and they're trained to do as officers above board and the Admiralty talks about it, and other ways of creating order which are completely under the table, allowing men to, um, to take stuff off a, a, a prize, you know, in the Chesapeake. One way to keep a man happy when you were short of food was to allow them to take as much tobacco as they wanted off of captured tobacco merchant ships, you know, they, and they captured that stuff all the time in the Chesapeake. And Robert Barry was great for this. Captain Barry of the Dragon, a second rate ship, right? He, uh, he had the men go over. The, he actually piped the men to tobacco and then had them go over in groups into this repeatedly into these barges and small boats they had with huge hogs, each hog being a thousand pounds of, of uh, tobacco. And the message was clear, he said, take as much as you can. Now, they were allowed, I believe, a pound a month. That's what the regulations and instructions said, no more. So these guys would come off with pounds each time, plus the pound they got from the Navy. You know, but the tobacco, what does tobacco do? Well, one of the things that tobacco does is it, take, it takes away your hunger, right? And this crew's hungry because they're eating uh, part rations because they can't get the food. So, you know, they did all sorts of things to keep them happy. There's all kinds of examples. Again, the very mixed. The Navy's very mixed about alcohol. Uh, there's all kinds of examples of extra alcohol under certain conditions. When the men do really well, a little bit of extra booze. When the men seem, you know, when it's really bad weather, give them a little bit of extra drink. And what do you see? They become a little happier. There's, there's no 
pushback here. Now there's issues of drunkenness, you deal with that, but there's no pushback on other, other stuff. Um, some officers uh, had dances, you know, let's work off this extra energy, Jack, guys. So you read in the ship's logs and in the, the memoirs that they write of these wonderful dances they had as they came across the Atlantic, or even when they were off the American coast, nothing else happened, they'd have a dance. Some officers, actually the, the junior officers, the lieutenants and the midshipmen put on acts, put on performances for the crew. Again, distraction, encouragement, the, the camaraderie, camaraderie that you're building with that, letting off steam, because they would be making fun of the captain or their admiral. That was part of the gig, you know? So these are brilliant ways, and they were used enough that you know people said, I'm going to use this, I'm going to do this, you know. Uh, and it, it keeps that mutinous flame from burning, although I'm sure the men would have complained about this, that, and the other thing. But they were happy enough to go along. So you, you saw, there's no huge mutiny whatsoever anywhere on the North American and West Indies station between uh, 1812 and 1850. None. It's amazing the techniques that get used. And again, apologies for sounding like a start record, but the, the parallels that exist in the army, you know, this idea that you'll, you'll let the men take a bit of X, Y, and Z. Uh, you, you talk about it actively being ordered for these men to sort of help themselves to tobacco. In the Waterloo campaign, you've got generals turning around to brigades and going, look, see those farmhouses? Take what you'd like, because you've been um, fighting all yeah. night, and you know just go let off some steam i'm going to need you back here in a couple of hours and and, and then you've got to fight a battle because this is actually the the night before waterloo that all of this is happening so you know this this inclination to use things that are not legally acceptable by any stretch of the imagination right. that would result in a court martial you know we've got people who are turning around and saying yeah you know help yourself to all of the crops in that field and don't bother paying for it um the the parallels are, are staggering because again i think this is about culture of command and the, the the tools by which you do it fundamentally aren't that different because you're dealing with people and you there are only certain buttons you can push when it comes to a person right yes it's just the means that are different when it comes to the navy it's fascinating um i want to talk particularly about your book though and, and the reasons and the sort of the methodologies if you like behind it because you focus very specifically on the North America kind of station and I'm curious about two things here firstly why why focus on North America specifically but also what was unique about the North America station in terms of the challenges okay um I chose the North American and West Indies station uh, that is the area in which the majority of the War of 1812 was fought. Um, it is a, um, a very independent kind of station, very large in scope. Not at the beginning. There were very few ships here, out here at the beginning, but certainly by the beginning of 1813, that begins to switch over. And in 1814, there's uh, a lot of ships have come out here. Um, so that's a good sample. And they've come from other places, which is also good they so there's this contained area this massive area a great geographical stretch which i think has impact on on how ships function and what happens on board ships 
as to where you are and what the uh, contact with the enemy is, as well as the um, the weather that you encounter, how much you're at sea and stuff, I think. And that plays across the station. So I think those were for factors I was thinking of ahead of time. Um, I picked this era, which is at the end of the Napoleonic War uh, era, and it's this war with America, <clears throat> uh, because the Nor mutinies in, in uh, 1797, and uh, the changes to the regulations and instructions in 1806 and a, a small update in 1808 would have had their greatest impact by this time. If, as some people have suggested, Linbaugh and Redeker, for example, that the Navy was a hotbed of, of revolutionary ideas, it should be by this stretch of the war where things are, people are certainly weary of how, how it is, it should be there. It should be seen intensely. Also, um, uh, Nicholas Roger had said that the uh, the mutinies at Spithead and the Nor had changed the relationship somewhat between officers and seamen, and that there was a certain uneasiness. Uh, that uneasiness is either going to um, go away or it's going to increase across the time period. So I picked the last three or four years uh, because I would say that would be the maximum period of it, the most intensity of it. Also, looking at because I had read uh, I read Burns' book many years ago, um, he got up to you know, 1811, then he stopped, and I thought, well, why did you stop, man? Uh, but he stopped, and and um, what I I saw clearly was there was this beginning increase during this last from, he had it from about 1807 through to 1811, he saw this increase. Although again, I'm not sure he knew what to make of it, but he saw that there. Um, and so I think, well, we're gonna see it more or less, we're gonna see it, but the West Indies was too small. I wanted to do the, the whole theater. Um, and so, so I chose the theater itself. Um, <clears throat> it lent itself to, to distance. I think I'm one of those people who think context is really important. Uh, if you look just at individuals and and look try to look just inside the individual and you have one theory about how that individual works, I think you're you're missing it. You have to understand, you know, people have needs and wants. Uh, there's a variety of things that motivate people, all sorts of ways of understanding them. But there's the context in which people uh, live and work and experience all the other people around them, the weather conditions, the threat of uh, contacting the enemy. Uh, disease presence or not, and there's all sorts of, of stuff that can influence the person. Uh, and so I think that the greater station, the larger area, allowed me to try to tap into some of that. Uh, so one of the things I found was that as they came across the ocean, uh, punishments were few and small in, in size. As they got closer and closer to the American shore, more punishments, and the punishments were harsher. <laughs> And this is on ships that that uh, you know didn't have a great deal of shore contact, but nonetheless were off the American shore. Uh, a war with America offered an incredible um, uh, context too, because America and Americans spoke just like and looked just like the British, right? They they still had accents they from what the accents they have today, um, and they they had much the same culture as the British did, so. If you got off a ship and went ashore, you were welcomed. Indeed, you know, New York State actually passed a law that said you cannot 
take uh, either a soldier or a sailor that has uh, deserted and give them back to the British, you will go to prison. You know, so that is like really welcoming at all the prison camps uh, and areas uh, in America. They had people that that tried to befriend or, or befriended the British uh, prisoners and encouraged them to come over and live in America and serve in America. They promised them all sorts of stuff. So if you could get ashore, whoa, you know, you could have a different life. Now, you probably couldn't go home again until many, many, many years later when you look different and the war was over and it was forgotten. But, you know, for now, and you could send messages to people back and you write a letter, that's okay. And that would get back. Um, and you couldn't get caught if you did serve for America because you usually got hung or or there were problems there. Um, so, you know, that that's, I thought that was a dynamic as well. And you certainly see that uh, people ran, although, as I said before, the vast majority of desertion occurred in uh, Halifax. And Halifax is n not that, I mean, it certainly is closer to America than London, England is, but it's not that far, it's not that close. And you'd have to go through some uh, pretty tough wilderness to get there. Uh, but uh, Halifax was a, a congregation point for merchant ships. They would have dozens, if not hundreds of merchant ships sitting in that harbor, all of them quite willing to take you on board. And if you were discovered to be absolutely shocked that you were a deserter, right? And there were ways to get out into the countryside of, of Nova Scotia and, you know, fish, go on, because there was a huge fishing industry. They needed people. So you could uh, you could escape and 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 get a career, get a life uh, uh, there. So it's interesting that that's the place where most of it happened. But there were there were certainly um, desertion in in the Chesapeake area, where uh, the main land activity. It was more upon sh smaller ships too, uh, that had more likelihood of getting in closer to shore and having more shore duty. So you know th this these context things. Uh, were I think uh, really open in this in this time period and this the this huge theater. So is desertion the most tried crime then out of out of what you've looked at? <laughs> um, tried in terms of court martials? Yeah. The most serious court martials, yes, the ones that end in death or, or massive lashing, yes. Um, the the number one court martial was loss of ship. Because the, the British lost quite a few ships. Interesting. Yeah. How different. Because within the British Army, the single most common category of punishment is desertion slash absence from unit, which is, you know, we're talking about mutiny. What is desertion is another one of these big, almost existential questions about are you deserting towards the enemy and being able to prove that absolutely yes. seals your death versus are you deserting because you know what you've just had enough or yeah. have you got drunk run away yeah. and then yeah. gone what the heck am i going to do now because if i go back they'll try me for desertion right which of course is the common defense that they use do you, do you yeah. see that actually being used as a look i i went on shore leave and i had yeah. too many drinks and i woke up in a ditch and i didn't want to come back and then by the next day when i've got over my hangover I didn't know what to do. I was scared of you guys because you're all so mean to deserters. Pity me. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a, a case of a, a sailor who uh, left the launch that went ashore at uh, Cape Cod for uh, water. Uh, and he was supposed to take care of the boat while everybody else went off with the barrels to get water. And uh, he buggered off, uh, clearly deserting. <laughs> but unfortunately for him, uh, he did have a little grog on the way. And they found him uh, in a sandbank, like in between two sandbanks, like a kind of ditch. And they hauled him back. And and uh, the whole point was, to was he going to the enemy? That was the issue. Uh, because he was guilty of desertion. That was done. But was it to the enemy or because he got drunk and fell over into this ditch? And uh, they thought it was going to the enemy. So the drunk plea didn't work in that case. Um, and I believe he was hung. Um, the um, Yeah, so the whole thing was, did you desert to the enemy or not? And if you desert towards the enemy, you, your, your fate was sealed. Uh, if it appears, as you said, in one of the other cases, something else going on, um, then we might have some lenience, but you're still going to get punished for desertion. You can't run away from us. <clears throat> that's not, that's a no-no, right? It's so interesting. I'm, uh, we could talk for another three hours, quite frankly, um, and, and still not be done. Um, I'm up for it. I'm not sure the listeners are, sadly. I, I'm almost at that point where I'm kind of forgetting that we're meant to be recording a podcast because I'm just finding this <laughs> such a, a fascinating discussion. Um, but I, I do want to talk about what you used because you used ships' logs. Now, not being familiar with the naval system, why are ships' logs particularly useful and how detailed are they? Um, I... What I used primarily were ship logs and muster tables. Uh, I'd have to say both of them. Um, so a ship log, I used the captain's ship logs uh, as best I could. There was a few master's ship logs that, that snuck their way in. Um, so interesting, a lot of people on board ship and they, and they commissioned a rank, uh, they kept logs. Uh, <laughs> they were ordered to do that. And in the logbook, they had to note uh, a variety of pieces of information, you know, where they were, the wind direction, weather conditions, seeing any other sail, receiving orders, taking on supplies, a variety of things, and uh, times as well. And they also had to record or were, were supposed to record punishments. Uh, and it was supposed to be the name, the reason, and the number of lashes. So in a good uh, logbook, you have all that. It's just a gold mine of of information also in the gold book because I, I i looked at different forms as you might remember of, of right regimentation of the body so they're supposed to record the, the uh, number of times and how they muster the crew type of gun gunnery exercises and small arms exercises they have they're supposed to record the um reading of the articles of war and they're supposed to record uh, the divine services because these things they were supposed to be doing on a regular basis. So I, I looked at that to see how much that was done, uh, and they're supposed to be in the in in the books. Now some books are very thorough, some aren't. Um, most books had most of the information, uh, and some of them I think reveal that a number of these activities were not done as much as they were supposed to. I think that's one of the glorious things that, that come out of this. Also, there's the issue that sometimes they were probably done, but just not recorded. Uh, and if I looked through everybody's uh, logbooks, if they were in existence from that ship, I might find somebody noting them. 
but for the most part, they just weren't. Um, and they may have been done in very different ways. Uh, so the, the logbooks have that information uh, every day from the entire time that the, the ship is uh, the ship is put in order to sail until it comes back and everyone's discharged from it. Uh, I think they're very thorough records. Um, I think that they are relatively truthful as opposed to some official letters, which I, I think officers are bending the truth to make themselves look a certain way or the enemy look a certain way. I think this is, they're just jotting this down. Um, uh, they're, they're working us out uh, when, they're, when they record it. Um, the muster tables, again, uh, they're supposed to list everybody who's on the ship, where they're from, their age, um, their rating, uh, changes to that rating and when that happened, and uh, when they were assigned to the ship and when they actually appeared on the ship and when they are discharged or leave the ship and where did, where did they go. And in that book, when they are given a D, which is uh, or, or an R, I should say, which means they deserted or ran, uh, it's to where did they run and what were the conditions or what happened. And again, in a really good logbook, you have all that. And it's just, a, I think they are an amazingly rich trove of information for maritime historians. Uh, and I hope to see more and more um, digging into these uh, to learn more about the, the sailors and their, their experience. Um, unfortunately, there are some that are uh, skimpy, to say the least. You know? Yeah, you're but, preaching to the choir on, on that point because I'm in the midst of trying to get funding to look at Lascars, the, those who were drafted into the East India Company yeah. Navy. Um, and the, the official records for, for trials just don't exist. Get them for the army. That's not a well. You've got to know your, your way around the, the papers, but you can find those. But ship's logs are the only hope I've got of of unpicking this. And I think they they offer an incredible insight that you've just got to mine that that mm -hmm. data set, haven't you? Because there's so much that you can pull out of that about yeah. sort of the the fabric of how these ships work. They're sort of the closest you can get to the beating heart of the ship. And we don't have mm -hmm. an equivalent in the army. And it's quite sad that, you know, there's, there are all of these books that are meant to be kept in the army and they just haven't survived. But remarkably, yes. the Navy, the, there just seems to be this huge volume of stuff. I mean, literally hundreds of these books um, mm -hmm. stored underneath the, basically, St. Pancras International Station, because that's where the British Library stores all of their, their archive material. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree. And I hope that, there will be more done on this. I'm going to ask about where next in just a moment. But before I do, at a macro level, does it work? Does the crime and punishment system work in the Navy? And, and what are its, its flaws? What doesn't work and what kind of needed shifting? But, but equally, you know, at a really kind of zoomed out level, does it do what it has to do from a day-to-day -day perspective? Um, yeah, at a macro level, one would have to say it did, because there were no huge uh, mutinies on board any of the ships. Uh, it, um, when it worked, when everybody on board was following the, the rules and the discipline, uh, they were doing the gunnery exercises as they were supposed to. Uh, they were marshalling the, the crew, keeping a, 
a tab on on how they are and behaving and, and working them uh, in a positive way, uh, things worked well. Um, I think if you look at the career of uh, Sir Philip Brooke uh, and the Shannon, which defeated the Chesapeake in under 15 minutes, um, if you look at, at him, uh, he was incredibly disciplined himself, as I said at the beginning, and he disciplined his crew. He used punishment sparingly in the time that he was on board ship, and he punished very mildly compared to anybody else. He, um, he practiced gunnery in a way that was sophisticated and copied by uh, his peers when they saw it. They understood, this is it. This is going to how to train people. That discipline, when that ship had to uh, attack or confront an enemy, that discipline worked perfectly. They basically, uh, I think they devastated the, the Chesapeake with their broadsides. When their ships made contact, uh, they boarded uh, the American ship uh, as they had practiced a million times from various spots quickly, perfectly. That ship was done like that. Um, and I think that shows that the di discipline worked. Now, if you ask again on a micro level, the men who were punished or the men who deserted the ship because they couldn't take this, they'll have a different answer. But if you step way back and say, well, what's the purpose of the Navy? What's it supposed to be doing here? Did it work? Yes. And, and it, it worked. If you look at the broader view overall, not just one ship, but the, the whole squadron, they were there to harass along the American coast, harass the Americans to stop merchant ships and to create raids and tension along the Chesapeake that will, A, take troops away from the north, uh, where they were trying to invade what was would become Canada, um, and it would undermine uh, support for the war. And then the late 1814, uh, the Americans and British were negotiating a, a treaty. The Americans understood that they were basically bankrupt. In another year of war, the country would not survive economically. <laughs> and you'd have to say, that's because the British blockade worked. And it worked because they were able to manage their ships and keep them doing what they were supposed to be doing uh, through a variety of what I would refer to as legal and illegal manner, <laughs> right? And it worked. What I love there is that you've kind of done what I've forgotten to do the whole way through the episode, which is set this within the War of 1812 context. So thank you very much for digging very me awesome. out of the hole there. No One problem. final thing um, from me, which is kind of the, the what next thing. I mean, I've talked about where I would like to go. Um, I think, you know, perhaps you and I need to put our heads together about how we get uh, something done about comparisons across the two, mm -hmm. because that's be, that's a fascinating nice. um, topic right there. But what needs to be done? Because your work opened my eyes. I've got no idea whether my work is opening other people's eyes. All I know is that lots of people keep asking me for a copy of the PhD and asking me if it's published yet. No, sorry, folks, give me time, please. It, it takes a while. Um, but there's there's so much more that could be learned not just about discipline you know let's let's step outside of my nerd sphere for a moment and the fact that i i find this topic fascinating socially within the army in terms of the interplay between 
you know, the, the Navy and wider society, the Navy and the Army, what else needs to be done to enable us to get a better understanding of kind of the, 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 the beating heart of this period, which is fundamentally the people, right? And the ideas that are circulating between them. Yeah. Well, that, that's such a massive question. You've got my head spinning almost. In, in terms of, and I'm, I'm going to take it back to, to discipline to start with, at least. Um, so my book uh, on the cover of it was 1793 to 1815, and, and the reviewers, uh, all but one, uh, noted that that was probably an inappropriate date. Um, and it is. Uh, I apologize for that. Um, I I felt to someone's I fell uh, influenced to someone's suggestion, but it's my my responsibility for putting that date there completely. I believe the date should be 1806 because I do believe my book does cover the influence of the um, changes in the regulations and instructions, and I know that my data contains people from 1811 appropriately because they were on the ship after afterwards and during the war. So I believe that's really the true dates. And if I ever republished the thing or ever got republished in some way, I'd ask the publisher to change the date, but that's another issue. I believe that this kind of stuff, uh, a deep look at order and disorder in all the various ways should be done throughout the entire period, uh, certainly from 1793 on, but also should, should be looked at during times of peace. Uh, Cause it, it'd be interesting to see exactly how um, discipline is created and the discipline in terms of the punishment for disobedience or of what I would refer to more broadly as, as, as disorder would be done. Um, and there's, there's some paper. I think uh, the one that I read recently that I really like as a starting point, I, again, I'm not sure I completely agree with him, is by Andrew Johnston. Uh, and he's looking at arbitrary and cruel punishment between 1860 and 1869 in the Navy. And he has some stuff from periods of peace before that. Um, he looks at what was referred to as the court-martial indices, which are sort of very summaries. Who got tried? Where did they get tried? What was the charge? What was the verdict? What was the punishment? Does it carried out? You know, Um and I think that's great, as, as his is, is, is a wonderful introduction to it, but we need to dig deep and read the court-martials, look at captain's logs, look for uh, uh, memoirs, uh, letters in, in, in newspapers and, and magazines of the time period to get a flavor of, of the description of what's happening at that life level, that level of the sailor, the officer on that ship where these punishments occurred, where these court-martials came from. Um, I think we need to do more of that across the period to see if there's an influence of war versus peace. There will be, I believe. Uh, it'll have a massive effect on when, how discipline is carried out. And I think that that story needs to be explored and, and told very clearly. Um, I also think that we need to, to stretch across the time period into the late 1800s and taking a look at when the new articles begin to take place in the 1860s, the articles, the more advanced articles of war, the more modern type, the other changes that occurred in the, in the, uh, the 20th century, taking a look at uh, the buildup to the First World War and discipline during that war as well, and so on. I think these the stories here will tell us a lot about the human experience on these ships, and it'll reflect changes in 
ship design, uh, power of the ship from sail to steam, which creates a whole new level of, of technolog technologically advanced uh, crew members that aren't officers. Uh, you know, as we go further into that technological advancement and the, the, the role of the seamen starts to change, the nature of who they are starts to change to a certain level. Uh, although every once in a while, when there's a war, you get this influx of civilians, and what does that do to discipline? You know, and I think, I think as we go further, the record is clearer, the record is more intense. Uh, it's going to take more digging, but uh, I think the fruits of that will be remarkable in truly describing their their life experience and figuring out how brutal or not brutal it was, how clear, how fair. Were there was there a capacity after 1860, for example, of of the tyrant captain, or or does that get taken away more because of the um, the nature of the rules being a little again more complex, more layered, uh, and more in control of the upper levels? You know, th throughout my my research and my reading of this period, what I see time and time again as we go from the you know 1750s through to the 1815 1820s we see just this bureaucratization uh of of the navy it gets bigger it gets more industrial it gets layered and there's a top level that wants control over this the admiralty wants to know everything and begins to appoint people and we didn't even talk about the role of patronage and discipline and stuff and how that orders and the huge fight that i see going on at this time around controlling patronage, uh, right? It's, it's just, it's just another, another whole top, topic, however. Um, so I think that that's, uh, that's what, what is needed. Uh, you know, to look at what happened during the Crimean War and what happened in the 60s, in the 1860s, and was what happened in the Crimean War, how does that involve in that reformation of the Articles of War? I mean, there's a whole variety of topics that one could suggest for PhD uh, students to, to look at and we get more and more and more of them into maritime history, which would be great. Um, yeah. In terms of the Navy and land, there's been some interesting work lately. Um, I've been reviewing a lot of books and uh, I've, I've read some very interesting social history books uh, that take a look at officers' careers and they spend some time ashore and with family formation. And I think that is an area that just needs incredible uh, more research and work and will also just benefit us so much in understanding what life afloat was, to, particularly to these family men um, and to, to these members of families, right? Uh, again, as you go further into the, 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 the 19th century, I think you'll get more data, more letters kept and more uh, memoirs, family memoirs uh, kept. Um, that would would add to this and again i see this beginning beginning to work uh, be done and it's just i think it's a beautiful area for research right so hints oh, yeah all very well said um if only we had the funding to start you know paying people to, yeah. to carry out this research it'd be amazing yeah. wouldn't it yes it would tom it's been certainly for me an absolutely fascinating hour and a half um also, just a, a side note, there aren't even any edits that I need to do, which always goes down very well with me as, <laughs> as the, the host and editor of this show. 
Folks, you're going to want to get your hands on Order and Disorder in the British Navy, 1793 to 1815, Control, Resistance, Flogging and Hanging. You can get it at Boydell and Brewer. Ask for somebody to get it for you for Christmas. Why not? It's that time of year. Tom, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute joy. And please do come back at some time, at some point, because we've got a lot more to talk about. At your pleasure. Folks, remember what I said at the start. Please remember to like, subscribe and share with a friend. Three simple things that make a huge difference. If you're particularly loving the show, why not head over to Apple Podcasts where you can leave a five star review and make sure you add a comment as well so that I can get your feedback on what's working on the show. As ever, a huge thank you to my Patreon supporters. You can get your hands on bonus content, hours upon hours of um, additional material, episodes on uh, the Marshalls, on the American Revolution, exclusive chats uh, on a wide range of things, in addition to a whole host of perks. Make sure that you avail yourself of those benefits if you are inclined. Obviously, I completely understand that that may not be for everybody and whatever support you're able to give, it means a huge amount, whatever form it takes. Particular shout outs. Those who are mentioned in dispatches are Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, John Haynes, Beatrice DeGraff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Andrew Leon, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Coulson, Jim Getz, Jeff Maple, Ed Koss, Indiana Fats, Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meeking, Mark Anscombe, Bruins Girl, Mark Trowbridge, Mars Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Rachel Stark, Chris Pramus, Anthony Gombau, Andrew Wright, Graham Spicer, Keys Bishop, Anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Sam German, Marcus Cribb, Robin Brasher, Hospitler, and James Fluick. The Admirals are David Priest, Rob Coughlin, Graham Callister, Mark Duckers, and Michael Guest. The Marshals are Rory Muir, Bob Burnham, Matt Bone, Graham Swidenbank, Colin Zimmerman, Ryan Diamond, Sean Sullivan, David Maxwell, and Juo Teixeira. The Emperor, that's J.C. Kaiser, and the Legion to Scholars, Liam Telfer and Todd and Laird Campbell. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. A very Merry Christmas to you all. And as always, thank you for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.